Welcome to CTSNet to Go, bringing your discussions about the most relevant topics in cardiothoracic surgery. The Cardiothoracic Surgery Network, known as CTSNet, aims to connect the global cardiothoracic surgical community through communication, collaboration, education, and interaction among cardiothoracic surgeons and their teams across the globe. Learn more at ctsnet.org. My name is Shanda Blackman, and I'm just one of the hosts of CTSNet2Go. In this podcast, you will be exposed to one of the roundtables that will show you what surgeons today are talking about. Good morning, uh, everyone. Uh, this is Mohamed Bashir, the editor of the Aortic, uh, CTSNet Aortic Portal. Uh, today, we are at the EACTS uh, in Barcelona. Uh, and uh, we planned for you a nice topic, which is quite debatable. It's about mid and distal aortic arch aneurysm uh, surgery, uh, the optimal strategy uh, and, uh, <clears throat> uh, and outcomes. And uh, this, this is quite a debatable topic in, in the sense that uh, there are many uh, variables in terms of histologic, anatomic, and clinical presentation, which necessitates careful uh, consideration of available treatment options. Uh, as we all know, endovascular approach has gained momentum in this uh, entity and it's become an, actually the first-line therapy uh, for descending thoracic aortic aneurysm uh, mm. surgery, uh, especially with the advancement of the new uh, graft technology. However, we want to uh, have a different uh, 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 opinion about that. And for this reason, I've lined today for you uh, a great panelist, which includes to my left here, Dr. Joe uh, Kiseli, who is from the Texas Heart Institute, uh, Baylor College of Medicine. And also on my right here, I've got uh, um, Kenji Minutoya uh, from Kyoto University, Kyoto in Japan. And of course, uh, uh, Dr. Martin uh, Scherny, the University Hospital uh, of Freiburg, Freiburg in Germany. Thank you very much all for joining me today. Um, I'm going to be uh, starting off by asking uh, you, Martin, um, um, how, how, how should uh, aortic arch aneurysm be treated in an era of uh, surge of endovascular uh, uh, technology? Martin. Well, <clears throat> actually, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that it should all um, be dependent on the, onto the underlying pathology. You know, the result um, of uh, developing an aneurysm might have different underlying reasons and therefore should be approached uh, uh, selectively. So actually, the main... Um, the main pathologies causing uh, mid and distal arch aortic aneurysms are obviously degenerative disease, but also penetrating atherosclerotic ulceration as well as post-dissection aneurysmal formation. And according to the underlying pathology, um, selective approaches should be chosen and the variety of approaches we may choose from range from classical surgery, either total arch replacement as we have known it for a long time, or the modification of using the frozen elephant trunk technique, which has become our preferred way to deal with many um, of post-dissection aneurysms, uh, because it's also a secure modification of the distal anastomosis up to combined procedures where you combine supraortic transpositions like subclavian to carotid or double transposition with TVAR. And finally, mm. Um, the total endovascular approaches which are currently uh, entering the clinical arena. 
Great. Thanks, Martin. Uh, Joe, we've heard a, a brief sum up of the current endovascular uh, sort of like umbrella on the treatment of this uh, uh, particular problem, which entails the arch and uh, the distal end of uh, the uh, aortic arch. My question to you, Joe, is can we identify which patients are likely to do well with open versus endovascular uh, approaches? And I'm asking you that because we all know that you have a great uh, uh, wealth of, of uh, expertise and experience in this, uh, in this form. Yeah, I would have, I would have to say that uh, most, most good risk surgical patients, and that, of course, is variable somewhat, uh, will do well with an open operation yeah. if they're a good risk. Yeah. I think Martin uh, summarized things quite well, but I, I think in order to add to the etiology, there's always uh, mycotic aneurysms, which have a proclivity for the lesser curvature of the transverse yeah. aortic arch. And certainly the, uh, the air, air titus entities, the Hashimoto's and Akiasu's, et cetera, and, and uh, Kinji may want to comment on that, also have aneurysms that arise in, in, this, uh, in this location. I think despite our experience with open surgery, we always evaluate these patients, even if they're good risk, uh, to at least consider um, and often uh, uh, apply endovascular uh, techniques. And, the things that we look for, uh, as well as the actual anatomy of the aneurysm, you know, is one of our landing zones um, in the uh, proximal transverse aortic arch, and what are we going to be dealing with uh, uh, distally? And, and as we're going to talk about, there's a wide variety of endovascular techniques that can be used. From an open standpoint, uh, this is a group of patients that, although we do not use cardiopulmonary bypass with hypothermic circuitry arrest, is our mainstay for descending in thoracoabdominal aneurysms. This is a group of patients who applying a cross clamp proximally is anatomically not feasible. So in most of these cases, we would be looking at a, a, a cardiopulmonary bypass and hypothermic circulatory arrest as part of the armamentarium for their treatment. And in general, as from an open left-sided approach, that puts patients in somewhat of a, a higher risk category because the physiologic magnitude of the operation <coughs> is greater. And I, so I think when you're making your selection of patients, you have to uh, uh, you know, con consider that. Great, thank you, Joe. Um, Kenji, we've heard now two main, uh, uh, two main uh, opinions about, about the strategy for mid and distal arch. We've heard Martin briefing the whole summer of pathology and, uh, uh, and, and the way forward in terms of endovascular. We heard it from uh, Joe here was the uh, big uh, uh, batch of experience that he has and how they deal with patient selection. My question to you, staying around the patients, is there is now an issue with why and how and when do we need to apply this technology and we need to consider this pathology on patients, especially, especially patients' age uh, is a cutoff nowadays. Everybody's talking about mm. personalized medicine, personalized uh, surgery, and hence my question to you is, um, what is the cutoff age? I mean, uh, is it justified to operate on, whether it's endovascular or open, as Joe alluded to, is it, is it justified to operate on a patient that are 80 and above? Kenji. Uh, yes, I, in my personal experiences, the octogenarian is a, a risk, absolutely, and especially in the male patients in our cohort study. So I'm... I'm I'm not hesitate to do an open surgery for an octogenarian, but we should be really cautious to apply the open surgery. So I'm not only chronological age, but, uh, but also um, uh, the patient situation, the risk, 
Um, in, in, so the patient has a high risk for an open surgery. Of course, we apply the uh, stent grafting, the branch stent grafting for arch diseases. But uh, generally speaking, uh, open surgery is not so bad, generally speaking. Of course, generally speaking. So I'm depending on the risk of the patient. That's a, a clue. Great, great, thanks. Kenji Martin, uh, back to you. Um, we know nowadays of the advance of the frozen elephant trunk, which you've also written extensively on this, especially as a part of the vascular domain of this uh, uh, association. He stage procedure using frozen elephant trunk in the treatment of the arch and proximal descending thoracic aortic aneurysm may have potentially to reduce the mortality and obviously influence the morbidity to some extent. How can we... How can we select such patients in your uh, experience, Martin? Well, actually, the main uh, <coughs> selection criteria between classical open arch replacement or using the classical elephant trunk technique and the frozen technique depends on the underlying pathology, meaning that if a second stage thoracic abdominal replacement is planned, we will go for a classical elephant trunk approach. However, if the underlying pathology uh, might be fully addressed uh, by the frozen technique, then we apply the frozen technique. Let me give you two examples. Yeah? Sure. A post-dissection aneurysm with a very small true lumen with a punct to maximum at the thoracic abdominal transition with six centimeters. It's very clear that the frozen elephant trunk technique will not cure the entire thoracic abdominal disease. Sure. This patient will undergo classical arch replacement, excising of the membrane as down as could, and then classical elephant trunk implantation to make the patient ready for second stage repair. A patient with a large true lumen, with a punct to maximum at the distal arch, um, uh, then um, um, uh, slimming to, let's say, a three centimeter uh, maximum diameter at the mid-descending, has the potential to fully, um, uh, to fully remodel. Yeah. So this one will go frozen, mm -hmm. undergo frozen elephant trunk implantation, <coughs> and an important detail, you can perfectly do a classical uh, aortic anastomosis to a stent graft because I think this is what many people are afraid of. You can easily clamp the stent graft because the nitinol will re-expand to its original shape after declamping, and to perform an anastomosis from classical dacron to a stent graft is not an issue. Great, Martin. Kenji, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you this question now. Hearing what Martin has been talking about in terms of, of the technical challenges uh, uh, and, and the remodeling uh, of, of the uh, rest of the aorta with the, um, with the utilization of the frozen elephant trunk, my question to you, Kenji, is uh, in, your, in your experience, what are the technical uh, challenges or in terms of early or delayed post-operative uh, uh, outcomes that you tend to see uh, in your cohort of, of open heart, open yeah. heart surgery. Mm. Okay, <clears throat> the, the most important thing is the distal anastomosis, maybe. So, depending on the extension, uh, anastomosis is really far from the midline uh, incision. So, in that case, we use a, a short graft interposition to make a good anastomosis. And uh, in my experience, is the, uh, the limitation of a distal arch. I'm sorry, distal anastomosis is maybe the level of a carina on the CT yeah. scan. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Then uh, with that uh, uh, the technique, I mean, a short graft interposition. Then uh, we we can do the safely anastomosis at the distal end. And uh, regarding a frozen elephant trunk, I'm not using so much a regular uh, frozen. No, I'm sorry, elephant trunk is usually okay. But uh, as Martin said, uh, especially in a chronic aortic dissection, fat might be good option. I'm not sure at this moment. 
All right, Kenji. We'll, Joe, we're going to stay with this thought, and I just wanted to grab what's your opinion about what just Martin said and Kenji said in terms of the technical challenges. Uh, I want to hear it from you uh, about this. What do you think? Well, I'll just cover some of it. I agree with Martin entirely. You can sow to these, uh, these uh, graphs for pretty much everything that's out there on the market. You can do an open anastomosis to them. Ideally, you want to do it in an area where you can also incorporate circumferentially the aortic wall. Mm -hmm. uh, and we've done this, I don't know, 70, 80 times or more, and uh, it's really not a problem. I agree with uh, uh, Kinji that when I'm, when I'm doing a total arch open from a median sternotomy, about the level of the carina is where I like to, uh, to, to go much below that. I'm generally thinking about a staged operation. If I have to do a second open operation or staged, using a frozen elephant trunk and as long as the pathology is at the SMA or a little, uh, a little more proximal. I think, you know, uh, one of the things you have to remember is this particular set of pathology at this particular location is, is good for discussion because it's really not that common. It probably makes up, mm. I would say, 8 to 10% of the yeah. pathologies that we treat. Yeah. But it is interesting and it's one of the ones that are still very much in flux as to how to treat, consequently, uh, this discussion. Um, for endovascular techniques, I think we also have to remember that uh, virtually all of the graft companies that I'm aware of are very, very rapidly uh, investing in and working on total endovascular uh, uh, approaches to, uh, to this form of pathology with various branch grafts, et cetera. Right now, if we want to do it, at least in the U.S., because of what's available to us, you know, we have in uh, clinical trials some single branch grafts. Yeah. That's easily could be applied to the left uh, carotid artery with a carotid subclavian bypass moving your landing zone far more proximally. And then if, if it's a really high risk for open surgery, you just don't want to uh, face that at all, uh, and you have a decent landing zone in the ascending in the aorta, you can always do a carotid uh, subclavian, carotid carotid, and then a sort of a sandwich technique off of the innominate artery. That's another thing that's available to you. And we, we, we've done that on occasion. Actually, uh, Another approach, although again it's not very common, is that uh, we've had, had patients with these really massive aneurysms and 80 plus year old, don't want to undergo an op open operation and for good reason. Uh, we've taken a small incision in the left thorax and run a, a graft from the descending to the left subclavian mm. and then subclavian, carotid, 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 so that now that everything's fed off the descending on up and then you can put a, just a simple graft across the entire transversiatic arch you know, and be done with it, and you don't have to worry about, uh, you know, the snorkels and sandwiches and that's that sort of thing. Great, that's that's very innovative, Joe. Thank you so much. Um, Martin, back to you. Uh, just, I'm trying to intrigue you here to, to talk to me more about endovascular failed thoracic endovascular aortic repair. We tend we tend to see this. Why? Well, it's all about the correct indications and doing the right things initially. So um, actually, you know, there are three main important factors. The first one is the length of the landing zone. This cannot be overestimated, yeah? And there are so many clinical scenarios, and we will have a session this afternoon on that, yeah? Where a trade-off with regard to landing zone will result in failure early or later. You might have a nice initial CT scan, but the, landing the short landing zones are going to dilate, and there will be persisting or recurring perfusion of the aneurysmal sac. That's the first thing. Sure. The second thing is respecting an anatomy. Um, steep angulations uh, might cause bird beak effects, might cause perforation of the nitinol crown to the fabric, and might cause, might cause failure by that way. And the third thing is 
diameter of the prosthesis. If yeah. you implant a 46 or a 48 prosthesis into a patient, you're implanting a disease, in a new disease in an old disease. Yeah. And these are the three main factors to prevent, um, to prevent any kind of endovascular failure. If you stick to these three details, then you will be very happy with a good long-term result. And if you cannot reach it, go for classical surgery. Okay, great, Martin. Uh, Joe, I'm going to stay still with the complications of that. Um, retrograde aortic dissection, that's, 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 that tends to happen uh, in this setting. What do we do? Yeah, I don't think, I don't think uh, our experience is any different from others in that when you're looking at zone zero, yeah. you know, anything over four centimeters is a pathological enough aorta that you're, you're at high risk for either long-term failure or, as you mentioned, uh, that's a group of patients that are more risk for yeah. retrograde type aortic dissection. And it would be a rare circumstance when that occurred that we would not take that patient to the operating room, carry out a median stenotomy and take care of the, the now new aortic dissection and then deal with what you've got in the transverse aortic arch and distally. Sometimes that's preserving the old graft uh, and incorporating that in your anastomotic repair. Uh, sometimes it may require removing it and then using a uh, uh, another device, uh, frozen elephant trunk, that's uh, particularly in Europe, you may take a simple device out and go to the Avita uh, or something like that. So there's, there's a lot of options, but the, the mainstay there is Q-type aortic dissection still carries uh, a high morbidity and mortality, and we consider it uh, surgical emergency and take those patients to the OR for repair as soon as possible. Great, Joe. Martin, would you do the same with retrograde aortic dissection? Absolutely. Hi, uh, Kenji, I'm going to ask you the same question in a minute just to see what's, your, uh, what's the uh, uh, opinion about that. Martin. Absolutely, same approach. I think there are some, let's say, morphological details uh, which may let you anticipate the likelihood of retrograde type A. And this yeah. is actually cuspidity of the aortic valve. So in any patient uh, with bicuspid aortic valve, we will not go for supraortic transposition and TVAR because they are at higher risk. A lost sinotubular junction because of a, um, a, a root uh, pathology phenotype-like situation, a long ascending aorta, which seems to be another risk factor, and any kind of arch anomality. Bovine trunk, isolated vertebral offspring, these are the small details uh, besides diameter, yeah. which might um, indicate elevated risk of retrograde type A. Great. Uh, Kenji, it's, it's, it's your, down to you now uh, as a final comment. What's your opinion about what Joe's mentioned and Martin mentioned about retrograde aortic dissection, especially that I've asked you previously about this cohort of, of ectogenarian? Um, it's really difficult to say because I have uh, a small experience of a retrograde dissection yeah. uh, was regarding to uh, stent grafting. But uh, actually, I experienced a high-age patient who had uh, uh, TVR, maybe over 90 years old, a lady, but uh, we, we saved him just now. We performed a regular operation instead of the TVR implantation. I mean, after the retrograde dissection, we did just artery placement, and we saved her. Means uh, the risk estimation was wrong, maybe. We could firstly then open surgery first. Then we, we you know, operation was more simple. Uh, the stories may be different, but uh, the firstly, we avoid uh, the, the, uh, the big, I think, aorta, over 40 millimeters, but uh, in some case, we have to do uh, the stent grafting for such cases. So I'm sure the retrograde uh, dissection could be happening every time, so we should be 
cautious and uh, we should be ready to uh, convert to open surgery anytime. Sure, yeah. sure. thanks Kenji. Uh, look, I, I, I'd like to keep you longer uh, if I had the will to. I know that you all have commitments and uh, scheduled uh, uh, meetings later on uh, today. I wish you all uh, a very nice day and I'm really honored to have had this discussion with you uh, today. Thank you so much. Uh, again, thank you for joining us. Uh, this has been Mohammed Bashir for CTSnet, Eoric Walter. Thank you. Thank you for listening to CTS Net to Go, your resource for podcasts focusing on cardiothoracic surgery. Find more discussions as well as surgical videos and other cardiothoracic surgery resources at ctsnet.org. You can also keep up with CTS Net by subscribing to the YouTube channel at CTS Net Video, by following at CTS Net Org on Twitter or by liking CTS Net's page on Facebook. I'm Shanda Blackman. Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of CTS Net to Go. Have a great day.